listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to The Corbett Report. I'm your host, as always, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, coming to you from the sunny climes of Western Japan here on the 26th day of May 2017. Welcome to episode 317 of The Corbett Report podcast, The Truth About Glass-Steagall. Now, if we cast our minds back, I'm sure we can all see it unfolding across the movie screen of our minds with the inevitability of the most nightmarish horror flick, the 1990s repeal of the Glass-Steagall Act, leading through the housing bubble of the early 2000s into the subprime meltdown of 2007, the collapse of Lehman in 2008, and the global financial crisis. I think we all know how that story goes. There are risks involved in underwriting and dealing in securities, and we decided that we would recommend the necessary changes only because we believe that a framework can be put in place that can assure that the potential risks from securities activities can be effectively managed. The purpose of the hearing is to get uh, Chairman Greenspan, uh, Greenspan's views on uh, what should be the restructuring of the uh, banking industry, if there should be a restructuring. Between now and March the 1st, uh, we're going to have to decide whether all bets are off or whether Congress should be a player in this and decide that commercial banks should get into the investment bank business. Uh, Chairman Greenspan is here uh, with a proposal that uh, we should indeed repeal the Glass-Steagall Act. It is true that the Glass-Steagall law is no longer appropriate to the economy in which we live. It worked pretty well for the industrial economy, which was highly organized, much more centralized, and much more nationalized than the one in which we operate today. But the world is very different. Now we have to figure out, well, what are still the individual and family and business equities that are still involved that need some protections? And the long and often tortured story of this law can be seen as a very stunning specific example of the general challenge that will face lawmakers of both parties, that will face liberals and conservatives, that will face all Americans as we try to make sure that the 21st century economy really works for our country and works for the people who live in it. For Wall Street, 2007 will forever be known as the year of the subprime meltdown. After years of massive credit expansion, the debt industry snapped, taking down major Wall Street figures and hitting corporations with initial loss estimates in the tens of billions. I have talked to the heads of almost every single one of these firms in the last 72 hours, and he has no idea what it's like out there. None! And Bill Poole has no idea what it's like out there. My people have been in this game for 25 years, and they are losing their jobs, and these firms are going to go out of business, and he's nuts! They're nuts! They know nothing! And the bell has sounded, bringing to a close an extraordinary day on Wall Street. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the closing bell. I'm Maria Bartiromo. Today in London, the rescue of Bear Stearns dominating the entire trading day on Wall Street, leading the market lower right from the get-go. Tonight, the Dow Jones Industrial Average finishes the week and the day with a decline on the session of 191 points. Another ugly day for stocks. S&P 500 today giving up 27 points, more than 2%. And the Nasdaq Composite. Losing 
two and a quarter percent, a decline of 51 points. Bear Stearns today leading the tumble on Wall Street. The stock plunging 45 percent after the New York Federal Reserve and J.P. Morgan agreed to provide an emergency financing to the Wall Street firm. Take a look at the stock trading. It was fast and furious. It finishes today at 29.75. That is a whopping loss of three and a half billion dollars in market value today alone. Lehman may post another two and a half billion dollar write down on home loans in the third quarter. For months, Wall Street had been worried about Lehman's because of the bank's massive property investments. With the crash in the market, it was now dangerously exposed. Shareholders were dumping stock and other banks were withholding credit. Lehman has lost six and a half billion dollars so far this year. The bank's share price had been dropping since May. Lehman's shares have been down sharply. But in the last 10 days, it had been in freefall. By that Friday afternoon, it was losing more than $8 million a minute. Yes, I think we do all know how that story goes. After all, it is the story that we've heard continuously and without fail from seemingly every non-mainstream media source since the crash of 08 itself, isn't it? You understand the difference between a commercial bank and an investment bank? Of course. Kenzie. No. Investment banks are gamblers. Commercial banks are where you have a savings account and a checking account. Can you bounce your checkbook? Yes. Kenzie? No. All right. So, after the Great Depression, Congress wanted to put a firewall between the investment banks and the commercial banks. They wanted to make sure that Wall Street could melt to the ground and the commercial banks wouldn't be touched. They passed a law, the Glass-Steagall Act. Now, you could be Gordon Gecko or George Bailey, but you couldn't be both. Mind if we just talk yeah. about Glass-Steagall. The firewall, it worked. It helped lead to the largest sustained period of economic growth in U.S. history. A 60-year expansion of the middle class, the largest increase in productivity, and the largest increase in median income. We also won World War II, put a man on the moon, and a computer in everyone's lap. And you know what happened next? We cheated on the perfect guy with the guy who dumped us. Yes, we repeal Glass-Steagall. Glass-Steagall said there's an inherent conflict of interest between the commercial banking side, which is the lending side, and the investment banking side, which is taking an ownership position. And we have to end this conflict of interest by separating these two entities. You can have investment banks and you can have commercial banks, but they have to be separate. Do you think that the repeal of Glass-Steagall was a tragic mistake? Uh, no, I don't think so. You could be a commercial bank, like Chase Manhattan, or you could be an investment house, like J.P. Morgan, or a bank like Bank of America, or an investment house like Merrill Lynch. But you couldn't be both. And as the 90s went on, the, the screaming uh, hyenas of Wall Street were demanding that this prohibition, this regulation, be abolished. The banking industry had been lobbying to repeal the act since the 1980s, and it finally succeeded based on the argument that the banking industry was losing market shares to securities firms. Another argument they made was that the security activities the banks were looking for were low risk by their nature. Obviously, the types of risky securities like credit default swaps had not been thought of at the time. 2009, we're looking back and saying, damn, shouldn't have done that. And they still haven't undone it. They still haven't undone it. The Republicans in Congress 
and a few of the Democrats, so deeply in the pockets of these multi-billionaire banksters, have not been willing or able to say, let's put Glass-Steagall back into law. And so let's look at an example of what is not open source journalism. Even though it's online, it's online journalism. This is the New York Times website, nytimes.com. And this was a randomly selected article from 1999. Uh, Congress passes wide-ranging bill-easing bank laws. Uh, Congress approved landmark legislation today that opens the door for new era on Wall Street in which commercial banks, securities houses, and insurers will find it easier and cheaper to enter one another's businesses. The measure, considered by many the most important banking legislation in 66 years, was approved in the Senate by a vote of 90 to 8 and in the House tonight by 362 to 57. The bill will now be sent to the president, who is expected to sign it, Aide said. It would become one of the most significant achievements this year by the White House and the Republicans leading the 106th Congress. Today, Congress voted to update the rules that have governed financial services since the Great Depression and replace them with a system for the 21st century, Treasury Secretary Lawrence H. Summers said. <laughs> uh, this historic legislation will better enable American companies to compete in the new economy. The decision to repeal the Glass-Steagall Act of 1933 provoked dire warnings from a handful of dissenters that the deregulation of Wall Street would someday wreak havoc on the nation's financial system. <laughs> the original idea behind Glass-Steagall was that separation between bankers and brokers would reduce the potential conflicts of interests that were thought to have contributed to the speculative stock frenzy before the Depression. Yes, that's right. Even yours truly, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, has echoed that very narrative in this very podcast. So it must be true, right? Because, after all, what's the mantra around here? Listen and believe. Whatever I say must be the truth, simply because I said so, and never ever look information up for yourself. That's what I'm always saying, right? Right. Well, well luckily, we're all saved, because a band of good Congress critters has got together... And they are on the cusp of reinstituting the Glass-Steagall Act, thus saving the economic system from the bankster predators. It is time for Congress to ensure that these failures in our banking system are never repeated. And that is why we are here today, and I thank my colleagues so very, very much uh, for joining me. To build on the momentum and the movement to reinstate Glass-Steagall to separate prudent commercial banking from speculation. Since last summer, 15 state legislatures have introduced resolutions calling for Congress to reinstate Glass-Steagall, and Democrats and Republicans have memorialized support for Glass-Steagall in their respective political platforms, which was an enormous achievement by all of you and others around our country who have worked for this for a very long time. We have long memories. Even President Trump has declared his support for a new Glass-Steagall law, and we are obligated to work with him to create that. So I was proud to join with 57 members of the House who several years ago voted against the Graham-Leach-Bliley Act, which overturned the Glass-Steagall Act. And, after, and I was one of those that voted against it. I remember that vote well in the late 1990s. It released a greed and abandon on Wall Street that had been capped since the Great Depression years of the early 20th century. Um, it, the law was a clear signal uh, that, by removing it, that Wall Street was in charge. And speculation houses grew larger and riskier. And uh, as we predicted, the house came crashing down. 
and American taxpayers were given the bill when the deregulated financial sector fell apart. So there you go. Some legislation has been tabled to reinstate Glass-Steagall, and it's in committee right now and quite frankly unlikely to get out of committee, but at any rate, Congress is attempting to do something to recage the banksters and put the power back in the hands of the people. And, uh, well, if you're a good citizen, you will write your Congress critter and you will ask them, beseech them to kindly support this Glass-Steagall reinstatement. There you go, folks. The truth about Glass-Steagall. Thank you for joining me for another edition of the Corbett Report. Hmm. Hold on a second. If you've been watching my interview feed recently, you will have seen my recent conversation with G. Edward Griffin, the author of The Creature from Jekyll Island, where we busted the JFK Fed myth, namely the myth that continues to circulate and propagate about Executive Order 11110 and how it was going to end the Federal Reserve System by starting a new monetary paradigm of silver certificates, uh, blah, blah, blah. And you will have seen our conversation where, in fact, we dissect the, the fact that reality is 180 degrees opposite to the Fed myth. That, in fact, JFK was not only in support of the Fed, but literally signed legislation on the same day that he signed Executive Order 11110 to uh, do the precise opposite, to withdraw the silver certificates and replace them with Federal Reserve notes. Uh, it's It's quite startling when you take a look at that and you realize how thoroughly and how fervently people can be duped into believing a certain narrative because it fits their preconceived biases. Yes, I mean, it must be true. I mean, clearly the banksters are horrible people. Clearly JFK was, tr was a good per crusader within the system. He was trying to get rid of them, and that's why he was killed. So this executive order was, must have been something that was threatening to them. But it's not really true. And the point that we made in that conversation is that all of us have these assumptions that we work from that if we do not continually question, we will at some point or other fall into the trap of fervently believing something that is simply not true. And that can lead us into all sorts of troubles. So it was in this mindset that I recently came across a provocative headline. I don't have the headline in front of me, but it was something to the effect that Glass-Steagall was completely irrelevant to the global financial crisis. Now that, that's an intriguing and provocative statement, especially since all I've ever really heard is that Glass-Steagall was this important banking regulation that got repealed under Clinton, and as a result, we saw the craziness of the early 2000s and the global financial crisis. Connect the dots. But what if that isn't true? Well, that got me thinking. At that moment, when I read the headline and knowing that I was about to encounter information that was going to be counter to what I'd heard before, I decided to put all of this question your assumptions to the test. And I did that by doing this. For the benefit of those not listening, not watching the video of this, but listening to the audio, I am holding my hands an ordinary coil notebook on which I've written in as much detail as I could in that exact moment what it is I know, or think that I know, about Glass-Steagall. 
I put that challenge to myself. Can I write down a coherent narrative of what Glass-Steagall was, where it came from, what it did, when and how it was repealed, for what reasons, and how that led to the global financial crisis? And I got a few sentences, <laughs> not, not very much detail at all, which is revealing in and of itself, isn't it? So I am going to ask you to participate in this challenge because I think it's a great way of really assessing what it is we think we know. And I, I mean this literally, not rhetorically, I want you to pause the podcast right now and write down in as much detail as you can what you know or think you know about Glass-Steagall. Again, what was it? Where did it come from? Why? What did it do? When and how was it repealed? What happened as a result of that repeal? And write it out in as, in as much detail as you can, your narrative of Glass-Steagall and what it means. And after that, we'll check those assumptions. But before you pause, here's a little extra added challenge for the brave, uh, the bravest of the brave out there. I want you to write your, pause the podcast and write your uh, spiel about the Glass-Steagall and what it is and where it came from and how it led to the global financial crisis. But do that in the comments section. If you're very brave, share it with the world. What do you know or think you know about Glass-Steagall? And we'll get to compare different people. Because I did it myself, and since I'm the bravest of the brave, I'm going to share mine with you here. So I think it would be an interesting exercise. And at any rate, it helps to keep us questioning those assumptions. I think this is a good little task that we should all be doing probably more often, and that I'm going to uh, try to be doing for myself on, on a more regular basis, because the results of this were very interesting. So please pause the podcast and write down your response. Okay, everybody ready? All right. So here was what I managed to write down about Glass-Steagall. Glass-Steagall was a piece of legislation co-sponsored by Senator Carter Glass and Representative Harry One-Eye Wiggenbottom-Steagall, I had to make that one up, and passed by Congress in 1933. It formally divided investment banking from commercial banking in the United States, ending the era of wild speculation that led to the Great Crash of 1929. It was repealed in 1999 under then-Treasury Secretary and Government Sachs squid operative Robert Rubin, beginning the crazy derivative casino economy of mortgage-backed secu mortgage securities, credit default swaps, and other bizarre financial instruments, creating a house of cards that was set teetering by the fall of Bear Stearns in 2007 and sent the whole economy into meltdown with the collapse of Lehman Brothers in September 2008. All right. So as you see, not a whole lot of detail in there, but some, some specifics, some names and dates. Uh, but I'll just go ahead and, and, uh, and share up front that almost every single part of this narrative is incorrect. Almost everything in here. Uh, but points to me, I guess, for getting Senator Carter Glass. But the question is, why did I know? Off the top of my head, why did I know that name, Senator Carter Glass? It's because if... If anyone out there has done any research on the Federal Reserve, do you know who tabled the Federal Reserve Act as it was passed in 1913? That's right, it was tabled. It was brought to the full house by Carter Glass, who at that time was the representative uh, for Virginia, the Democratic representative. There you go. So uh, interesting, isn't it, that the man, the very man who actually tabled the Federal Reserve Act 
was the one who was responsible, whose name is attached to this Glass-Steagall act? I mean, that right there should be a, give you at least a moment of pause for thought. As it did for me when I realized, how do I know Senator Carter Glass- Oh. <laughs> so, anyway, that's a revealing little moment. But, uh, as I say, almost every single thing that I thought I knew about Glass-Steagall is in fact wrong. So, let's start- let's start going through it. Let's- Let's see what is the real story of this. And of course, in order to see the real story, we have to start looking at the original sources and figuring out the history of what what went on and what Glass-Steagall even is. Because people refer to the Glass-Steagall Act as if this was an act of Congress. Well, no, not, not exactly. Glass-Steagall isn't a piece of legislation. There is something called, that's commonly referred to the, as the Glass-Steagall Act of 1932, but that isn't the Glass-Steagall that people are talking about when they're talking about these bank regulations. The Glass-Steagall Act of 1932, again, tabled by Glass and Steagall, um, sponsored by Glass and Steagall, was in fact an act to improve the facilities of the Federal Reserve System for the service of commerce, industry, and agriculture to provide means for meeting the needs of member banks in exceptional circumstances and for other purposes, which, again, was a piece of legislation that passed in 1932, and it was, interestingly enough, the first time that currency, non-specie, paper currency, etc., was permitted to be allocated for the Federal Reserve System. So again, Senator Carter Glass, and, and in this case, uh, Stiegel, who uh, for the record is uh, Henry Stiegel, Representative Henry Stiegel, uh, they were up to their necks in the Federal Reserve System and supporting and sponsoring the Federal Reserve System. So again, the idea that these are crusading anti-banksters of some sort doesn't already doesn't seem to fit with reality. Uh, and we're just getting started. So anyway, that was the Glass-Steagall Act of 1932, but that's not what people are referring to when they talk about Glass-Steagall. When they talk about Glass-Steagall, people are referring to four sections of the Public Banking Act of 1933. And these four sections taken together are referred to as the Glass-Steagall legislation. So, uh, as always, of course, I'm going to include the link to Public Banking Act of 1933 so you can go and read it for yourself or it, at any rate, try to read through the relevant sections. It's going to be more of that legalese legislative gobbledygook that, again, makes the eyes glaze over and most likely intentionally so. But if you stick through it, you can read through it. You can puzzle it together. It's not, it's not impenetrable. It's just not the funnest reading. But I do suggest you do take a look at it, because, again, without looking at the sources, without actually looking at sources, uh, you're just relying on what other people say. And that's, that's, never, uh, that's never a good habit to get into. But since we're here in the podcast, let's summarize um, these sections. Specifically, we are talking about section 16, section 21, uh, sorry, section 16, section 20, section 21, and section 32 of the Public Banking Act of 1933. So let's go through what these four sections of the Public Banking Act did individually, and this is what people are referring to as Glass-Steagall. Section 16 of the Public Banking Act of 1933 forbade commercial banks from purchasing non-government securities. And here we're talking about stocks and bonds and other types of financial instruments. Uh, but not government, not federal government-issued bonds or that sort of thing, but stocks and bonds that are available uh, from the, uh, the private markets. 
Section 20 of the Public Banking Act of 1933 forbade commercial banks from using affiliates to purchase securities. And affiliate is basically a, it's a technical term for the, in the banking industry. Uh, basically, if a bank has less than 50% ownership in another bank or financial um, company, then that, that is an affiliate of the bank. Uh, Section 21 forbade investment banks from offering commercial banking. And so commercial banking, of course, is the banking that people deal with in their day-to-day when they write a check or they go and take money out of their savings account. That is commercial banking. And investment banking is underwriting IPOs and all of that kind of stuff, securities and treasuries and dealing in that, that, those sorts of instruments. Uh, section, so section 21 forbid investment banks from offering commercial banking. You can't go to a investment bank like Goldman Sachs or what have you and open a savings account. Section 32 specifically forbade commercial and investment banks from having interlocking boards of directors. So that's to say if there's someone who is on the board of directors of this ex-commercial bank, they cannot also simultaneously be on the board of directors of Y Investment Bank. So those are those taken together are the four sections of the Public Banking Act that are referred to as Glass-Steagall. Now here's another interesting twist in all of this. Not all four of them were repealed. The repeal that people are talking about when they talk about repealing of Glass-Steagall in 1999 was the Graham-Leach-Bliley Act that, as we saw in that clip earlier, was signed into law by Clinton in 1999 and not under Treasury Secretary Bob Rubin, as I thought when I wrote this little summary, but under his successor, Larry Heck-of-a-Job Summers. We all remember Heck-of-a-Job, right? Um... Larry Summers uh, was the one who was actually in charge of the Treasury at the time this was signed. Bob Rubin, his predecessor, had started the ball rolling on it, but at any rate, another nitpick to to be made. Now, not all four sections of Glass-Steagall were repealed by the Graham-Leach-Bliley Act. Only two of them were repealed, meaning the other two sections of Glass-Steagall are still on the books. So which ones were repealed, which ones remain? The repealed sections of Glass, uh, Glass-Steagall are Section 20 and Section 32. So for the Section 20, which prohibited commercial banks from using affiliates to purchase securities, has been repealed. So now commercial banks can use affiliates, i.e. banking institutions that they own less than 50% of. They, as, they can use them as a proxy, essentially, to buy securities. And Section 32 uh, uh, forbid commercial and investment banks from having interlocking boards of directors. That was repealed, so now there can be interlocking boards of directors between commercial and investment banks. But the other two segments, uh, sections of the Act there, Section 16, forbidding commercial banks from purchasing non-government securities, and Section 21, uh, forbidding investment banks from commercial banking, from offering commercial banking services, both of those are still on the books. They still hold. And so you still cannot open a commercial savings account, for example, at an investment bank. And you can still, you still, if you're a commercial bank, you still cannot purchase non-government securities. Um, So 
Gramm-Leach-Bliley wasn't exactly a repeal of the Glass-Steagall Act. It was striking out of two sections of the Public Banking Act of 1933 that are part of what we refer to as Glass-Steagall. Some of that might sound a bit nitpicky, but in fact, it is important to know the details of this, because it is only through knowing the details of what is Glass-Steagall and what was repealed that we can even begin to hope to come to an understanding of how this did or did not play into the global financial crisis. So that is the question on the table now, at this point. So knowing this, knowing that these two sections of Glass-Steagall have been repealed, how did that lead to the global financial crisis? What role did that repeal have in the housing bubble, in the subprime meltdown, in the, in the financial crisis generally? If you answered nothing, give yourself a prize, because the correct answer is absolutely, completely, totally, 100% nothing. The repeal of those two sections of the Public Banking Act of 1933 have no conceivable connection to what happened in the ensuing years in the 2008 financial crisis. And I'm not just talking about, oh, well, you know, kind of this had an influence and effect on that, which kind of had this kind of effect. No, I mean, literally, absolutely zero. It was utterly irrelevant to what happened in the 2008 financial crisis. Okay, so now now let me read you this paragraph. Uh, it, uh, it says, we got Bear Stearns, Lehman Brothers, and Merrill Lynch, three institutions at the heart of the crisis, were pure investment banks that had never crossed the old line into commercial banking. The same goals goes for Goldman Sachs, the infamous AIG, an insurance firm. New Century Financial, a real estate investment trust. No Glass-Steagall there. This is from uh, uh, the Washington Post, which is not known for being anti-regulation. But there's a column from the Post from uh, several years ago saying, if you're looking, if you're trying to look for a boogeyman, this one's just not going to work because it doesn't it doesn't match up with the financial crisis we just endured. We did not have a problem with institutions. You know where we had a mingling of investment and and uh, commercial banking. That's not what happened. That's that's entirely right. Um, the whole Glass Steagall issue is completely irrelevant to the, what happened in the financial crisis. And people have to really understand what happened in the financial crisis to understand why it is true. And that is everybody who got into trouble got into trouble because they bought and held mortgage-backed securities or mortgages themselves. Um, the issue of dealing and underwriting in securities was never a question in the financial crisis. AIG got into trouble by, by uh, uh, actually, they insured mortgage-backed securities rather than actually holding them. Um, Bear Stearns, Lehman Brothers, Goldman, to some extent, all got into trouble because they invested in, held in other words, mortgage-backed securities or mortgages. So in other words, they were doing something they had always been allowed to do. There was no phantom regulation that was repealed that suddenly allowed them to do these things. Exactly. In fact, that's a really good way to put it, Tom, because if Glass-Steagall had never been touched by the Graham-Leach-Bliley uh, Act in 1999, the financial crisis would have unfolded exactly the way it unfolded in 2008. 
I get the sense, though, that some people who say what we need is a resurrection of Glass-Steagall, let's say we're talking about the more informed ones, their view might be, okay, you're right, it's not directly related to the financial crisis, but they seem to think there's some connection between the partial repeal and the rise of institutions that were too big to fail, that contributed to these – the creation of these gargantuan institutions. Is there anything to that? No, because the ones that actually failed, there were there were three different kinds, three different institutions, different kinds of institutions that failed. There were the AIGs, um, which was in fact an insurance holding company, but it also engaged in insuring, in effect, with this so-called credit default swap. It was also insuring mortgages. That's one kind. Another kind was an investment bank, like a Goldman Sachs or a Lehman Brothers, or a Bear Stearns, they got into trouble because they bought and held as investments mortgage-backed securities. And then there were commercial banks like uh, Wachovia, or WAMU, uh, that is Washington Mutual, known as WAMU, or IndyMac, three different kinds of commercial banks. They also got into trouble by holding mortgage-backed securities or mortgages themselves. So... Uh, what we learned from all of that is that it doesn't matter what kind of institution it was or what kinds of laws applied to the way they carried on their business, but the fact was that they got into trouble by investing in these very low-quality mortgages. That was a snippet of a conversation between Tom Woods and Peter J. Wollaston, author and researcher, on episode 638 of the Tom Woods podcast, Did Deregulation Cause the Financial Crisis? Link in the show notes, as always, wherein they discussed the history, research, and context of Wollaston's book, Hidden in Plain Sight, What Really Caused the World's Worst Financial Crisis and Why It Could Happen Again. And as you heard from that snippet, and as was represented in the general conversation, yes, Glass-Steagall, more specifically, those two sections of Glass-Steagall that were repealed by Graham Leach-Bliley in 1999, had nothing whatsoever to do with the housing bubble or the subprime meltdown or the global financial crisis generally. Literally everything that happened in that bubble and meltdown could have, presumably would have happened, whether or not those two sections of the Public Banking Act of 1933 were repealed because it literally changed nothing in the context of that crisis. So this raises, this automatically provokes some further questions, namely three questions that I can think of off the top of my head. Number one, well, what really did cause the crisis then? Uh, number two, well, why did this this narrative about Glass-Steagall and its repeal being key to the crisis, why did that get propagated in the first place? And then thirdly, uh, well, then why has it been, why has that narrative, that Glass-Steagall narrative been latched onto and repropagated endlessly by people who've never really looked into the details of it? Now on that third question first, it, I think obviously the answer is similar to the JFK Fedmith Uh, answer. It's that this fits into a grander narrative that intuitively it makes sense. We know the banksters are these vicious psychopaths. We know they're looking for any excuse to go off the chain and melt down the entire economy at the drop of a hat. And it's only government regulation that can keep them at bay. And so this regulation was repealed and and then everything happened. It, It has to be related, cause and effect. It just fits a narrative. It fits it nicely and it fits 
the preconceived notions that uh, a lot of us are working from. So it gets repropagated. Whether or not there's any meat on the bones, whether or not we even know if there's any meat on the bones, it just feels right. So it gets propagated. And as I say, I, I myself guilty as well. Uh, mia culpa. So that is a powerful psychological tool that can be used as a weapon. We will come back to that point later in this episode. But let's answer the first two questions uh, here. N namely, one, what did cause the financial crisis? And two, why did the Glass-Steagall narrative get propagated in the first place? And to knock down those two birds with one stone, we're going to turn to a very interesting article from Dr. Thomas Sowell, who seven years ago wrote an article entitled Is Barney Frank? Referring, of course, to Congressman Barney Frank, who will, I'm sure, be familiar to the American listeners of this podcast and maybe even some non-Americans. And in that article, I think Sowell does a good job of breaking down the real reason for the crisis and why certain people never wanted to admit that, uh, in this case specifically targeting Barney Frank. Reading from the article, quote, No one contributed more to the policies behind the housing boom and bust which led to the economic disaster we are now in than Congressman Barney Frank. His powerful position on the House of Representatives Committee on Financial Services gave him leverage to force through legislation and policies which pressured banks and other lenders to grant mortgage loans to people who would not qualify under the standards which had long prevailed and had long made mortgage loans among the safest investments around. All this was done in the name of promoting more home ownership among people who had neither the income nor the credit history that would meet traditional mortgage lending standards. To those who warned of the risks in the new policies, Congressman Frank replied in 2003 that critics exaggerate a threat of safety and conjure up the possibility of serious financial losses to the Treasury, which I do not see. Far from being reluctant to promote risky practices, Barney Frank said, quote, I want to roll the dice a little bit more in this situation, end quote. With the federal regulators leaning on banks to make more loans to people who did not meet traditional qualifications, the undeserved population in political newspeak, and quotas being given to Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac to buy more of these riskier mortgages from the original lenders, critics pointed out the dangers in these pressures to meet arbitrary home ownership goals. But Barney Frank counterattacked against these critics. In 2004, he said, I believe that we, as the federal government, have probably done too little rather than too much to push them to meet the goals of affordable housing. He went further. I would like to get Fannie and Freddie more deeply into helping low-income housing. Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac were crucial to these schemes to force lenders to lend to those whom politicians wanted them to lend to, rather than to those who were most likely to pay them back. So it is no surprise that Barney Frank was very protective towards these two government-sponsored enterprises that were buying up mortgages that banks were willing to make under political pressure, but were often unwilling to keep. The risks which banks were passing on to Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac were ultimately risks to the taxpayers. Although there was no formal guarantee to these enterprises, everybody knew that the federal government would always bail them out if necessary to keep them from failing. Everybody except Barney Frank. All right, that's just a snippet from uh, Thomas Sowell's article, which I think is a good one for putting it quite bluntly and quite simply, that in effect, the real cause of the housing bubble, the crazy 
subprime mortgage bubble that we saw and which led to the meltdown was squarely on the back of these programs that were encouraged directly by the government and and, and affected through these government-sponsored enterprises like Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac to effectively backstop these risky mortgages on the taxpayer dime. Uh, the implication always being that, of course, the taxpayers are going to bail out Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac if they ever got into trouble, but that'll never happen, right? So there is a very, uh, in some ways, a very simple narrative to understand here. Now, obviously, as with all narratives like this, the details are significantly more complex and deserve a more thorough treatment. And uh, for that treatment, I'm going to direct you to Peter J. Wollaston's book, Hidden in Plain Sight, where he does outline what caused the financial crisis and why it could happen again. Specifically, on this note, we could turn to Chapter 5 on HUD's central role. Bonus points if you know HUD, the Office of Housing and uh, uh, the Department of Housing and Urban Development, where Wollaston writes, quote, Although Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac have taken most of the blame for misguided mortgage lending that ultimately led to their insolvency, they were only the tip of the spear. The moving force behind the government's effort to loosen underwriting standards was the Department of Housing and Urban Development in both the Clinton and George W. Bush administrations. This chapter outlines the various government programs, in addition to affordable housing goals, most of them initiated by HUD, that played a major role in the growth of non-traditional mortgages, NTMs, the financial decline of the government-sponsored enterprises, GSEs, and ultimately, the financial crisis. Okay, well not go too deeply into that. I will, again, refer you to this book where you can read in much greater detail about these various government uh, programs, uh, affordable housing goals and all of this that were uh, shoved through the the uh, government-sponsored enterprises of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac to effectively backstop the subprime craziness. And it was, I mean, it's a there's lots of charts and graphs and dates and numbers and figures to go through, but it is a it is a fascinating story and a very cautionary and and horrifying one in some ways. But perhaps the most horrifying part of this is that most people haven't really heard this narrative. They haven't heard it in great detail, and they've heard a lot more about Glass-Steagall than they have about HUD, let alone Fannie and Freddie. So uh, there is a much bigger narrative here that's more to the point, and in fact actually based in reality, unlike the Glass-Steagall narrative. So that's, that is the answer, if we want to answer about what caused the, the financial crisis, what caused the subprime meltdown, what caused the subprime bubble. Uh, we have to go in that direction. But then what about the other question? So why did Glass-Steagall get latched onto? Why did it get propagated in the first place? It's almost as if there were certain people with certain political credentials to to burnish or to retain that had a an investment in a narrative like the repeal of Glass-Steagall led to the global financial crisis. Yes, now we're talking about Glass-Steagall, but if you want to know, uh, and, and I'm saying to you that Glass-Steagall had nothing to do with the financial crisis, and no restoration of Glass-Steagall would have prevented the financial crisis. So... Let's leave that aside, because in fact, there was a cause for the financial crisis that no one is talking about, and especially people on the left are not talking about, because it was government housing policy that caused the financial crisis. And in fact, I would argue that the whole Glass-Steagall idea 
was raised as kind of a smokescreen yeah. to prevent people from talking about the real problem, which was what the government did in housing policy. We had – I'm going to link on today's show notes page. We're on episode 638, so tomwoods.com slash 638. I'll link to our previous discussion where we really, really – you had some great information. We really went into that and and uh, explained and exposed it. You're right. I think – and I read uh, an economist named Bill Woolsey said that the only reason he can think of – and it might have been Alan Meltzer, but one of them said the only reason they can think of – that anybody would point to Graham Leach Bliley and the partial repeal of Glass Steagall is that it's the only regulatory move and, and change of any kind that's even remotely connected to anything having to do with anything. Actually, I said that, Tom. Oh, oh. <laughs> but maybe maybe Alan Meltzer picked that up too. I haven't read all this stuff, but I've been arguing that from the beginning. Well, and, well hold uh, on a minute. I, I have. Let me point something out before we went on. <laughs> this actually this actually uh, confirms what I told you before we went on. I said I said. Uh, People have been wanting to know about this Glass-Steagall thing, and, and, and I want you to talk about it because everything I know I learned from you, including your funny lines, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is, it is very, very frustrating um, because people who know better have been talking about this as though they understand it. A, a, a senator uh, from Massachusetts by the name of uh, Elizabeth Warren has been saying on radio programs that I've been on with her that Glass-Steagall was responsible for the financial crisis. But then later on, in candid discussions with other people, she has said, well, no, of course, it really had nothing to do with the financial crisis, but it's important to understand that it was deregulation of some kind. The important thing to understand about deregulation of some kind is that we've had a lot of deregulation and it's been great for the United States. We have had deregulation in, in some parts of finance, like the elimination of, uh, uh, regulated costs for trading securities. That's now all free market. We've had deregulation in communications. That has given us the internet and iPhones and so forth. We've had deregulation in transportation. The one area where we have not had any deregulation is in the regulation of banks. That has only gotten tighter and tighter over time with the exception of Glass-Steagall, and that was not a deregulation of banks at all. It was a deregulation, if you want to call it that, of the companies that own banks. They could then own also uh, firms that were engaged in underwriting and dealing in securities. So uh, the left, uh, and I'm, I'm sorry to say this and impugn their motives, but the left has been looking around for some kind of deregulation that could have caused the financial crisis, and they hit on the Glass-Steagall Act. And since no one else knew anything about it, and it's a complicated idea, right. they've been pumping that idea now for years, and people have fallen for it. Uh, but in fact, it had nothing to do with the financial crisis, and the left, unfortunately, has to face the facts. And the facts are that government housing policy, as I made clear in my book, and you were kind enough to talk about my book at one time, as I made clear in the book, well, the financial crisis was caused by government housing policy, nothing more. Remind us of the, the full title of that book. Oh, it's called Hidden in Plain Sight, What Caused the World's Worst Financial Crisis 
and why it can happen again. All right. So once again, don't take my word for it. Don't take Woods or Wollaston's word for it. Do look into the source material that I'm going to link to and other source material that's out there. But when you do and you start to realize that the two sections of the Banking Act of 1933 that were repealed by Graham Leach Bliley in 1999 truly had nothing to do with the financial crisis and that that financial crisis truly was the re direct result of these affordable housing goals and other things that were being uh, foisted on the banks, uh, literal quotas and, uh, and, and, and lending practices that were being mandated and then backstopped by the taxpayers through Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Once you start to, to see that bigger picture, you start to realize why certain people on a certain side of the phony left-right paradigm desperately want you to think about Glass-Steagall and desperately don't want you to think about the real causes of the crisis. And that's interesting and instructive all by itself, but that only takes care of the latter half of my little breakdown here of what I thought I knew about Glass-Steagall with this pretty hazy narrative that uh, the repealing of that regulation led to the housing bubble and the subprime meltdown. Well, we know that's wrong. But what about the first part of my, of my breakdown here where I said it was a part of legislation that was passed in 1933? Okay, check mark. Uh, by Senator Glass and Representative Stiegel? Okay, check mark. Uh, it formally divided investment banking from commercial banking in the United States? Okay, yeah, well, yeah, check mark. Ending the era of wild speculation that led to the Great Crash of 1929. Is that part correct? Well, uh, hmm, maybe not. So let's examine that in some more detail. Obviously, the Banking Act of 1933 was passed in the wake of the 1929 crash and the resulting depression and uh, the, the, the absolute bloodshed and carnage that took place as a result of the Wall Street craziness of the 1920s and its fallout. So obviously there's something to that narrative, right? I mean, at the very least, the public outrage was there, and it was caused by the crash of 29 and what resulted from that. But was that carnage and bloodshed and the great crash, was that caused by universal banks? That is, banks acting both as investment banks and commercial banks together? Well, this isn't a, this isn't a theoretical point. There is actual empirical data that you can look at and really examine in detail that will decide this question. Were the universal banks, the banks that were both investment and commercial banks, were they to blame? Were they responsible? Were they the ones that caused the, 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 the instability that made the, the depression what it was? And the, there is an answer to that, and the answer is no. And we get that from a very important work that was written in 1990 by George J. Benston called The Separation of Commercial and Investment Banking, The Glass-Steagall Act Revisited and Reconsidered, which is an important work for many reasons, one of which because it does go through the actual empirical historical record, but another reason because it was written in 1990, well before Graham Leach Bliley, well before the housing bubble and subprime market. So it's not writing retrospectively from with the hindsight of those, those things in mind. It's written before that point. It's just an examination of the actual record, the actual empirical data from the 20s and 30s. <clears throat> and the downside of this is that if you want to buy a new, a new copy of this book, it is available from Amazon for $2,942.01. <laughs> Although used books are only $95. What a steal, guys. Uh, if you don't want to shell out $3,000 for a book, you can uh, get an excellent and very detailed 
summary slash breakdown of uh, Benston's book from a uh, YouTube video called Exploding the Glass-Steagall Myth. It's a 52-minute video and goes through a lot of the information we've talked about and a lot of the information in Benston's book. It's by a YouTube user under the handle Ivan the Heathen. The link will be in the show notes. The audio of that video is not very good, so I won't be playing it here on the podcast, but it is uh, listenable. So I do suggest you go and listen to it if you are at all interested in these subjects. But he goes on to articulate about Benston's research. And as an example of that research, if we want to look at the question, the actual empirical question, were these universal banks, the investment slash commercial banks together, were they the problem? And did dividing them create a less risky banking environment? The answer definitively is no. Uh, When you look at the general failure rate during that period, the great crash period, for general, for banks of all sorts, universal banks, investment banks, commercial banks, the general failure rate was 26.3%. But the failure rate for the universal banks, that is the banks that combined investment banking and commercial banking, was only 7.2%. They did much, much better than the general banking population, and they had higher profit margins. So uh, that actually makes logical sense when you think about it, because as universal banks, they had not only depositors that they could do commercial banking with, but they could diversify their portfolio with their their investments in, in securities and, and uh, bonds and things of that nature. So they they were less risky. They failed at a lower, far lower rate. They had higher profits. Uh, in every empirical measure you can think of, the universal banks did better. So dividing those universal banks into investment and commercial banking, at least from that perspective of making the banking environment less risky and making these banks more stable, did not signally and demonstrably did not accomplish that goal. But further, the 1933 Banking Act, which Glass-Steagall was embedded in, was was part of a, obviously, the milieu, the context of the public seeing the problem and getting that reaction, oh, this is terrible, and then the solution, what are they going to do about it? Well, we'll do things like the Public Banking Act of 1933, which, by the way, FDR liked to, in later years, try to take credit for. But in reality, if you look at the the bill and its passage, FDR had nothing to do with it. It was not part of his 100-day, you know, legislation, legislative agenda, the New Deal and all of that. It was uh, not something that he worked on. It was not something that he was championing. Uh, he just retroactively tried to take some kind of credit for it. So that's another part of the uh, string of lies associated with this subject. But one particular thing that was ongoing at the time that definitely fed into this was the Picora investigation headed by Ferdinand Picora. And this was a uh, an investigation that was being held uh, to a, a series of public hearings that were grilling various bankers about their role in what was going on, the crazy speculative and stock market bubble of the 1920s and their role in causing the crash in the first place. And the hearings uh, were ongoing in 1933. And so if you actually look at the timeline, um, the investigation was ongoing when the 1933 Banking Act was passed in June of 1933. So you can't really say unproblematically that the Pecora investigation led to the 1933 Banking Act. But the most dramatic and high-profile part of the Pecora investigation uh, was in February of 1933, before the Banking Act was passed, where they dragged Charles Mitchell, who was the uh, chairman of National City Bank, 
before the investigation and subjected him to this 10-day hearing that got a lot of press at the time, a lot of interest, and a lot of generated a lot of headlines uh, because it dragged Charles Mitchell and National Citibank through the mud and revealed a lot of their dirty tricks that they were pulling. And as a result, Charles Mitchell ultimately ended up resigning as chairman of National Citibank. So it did have that real-world effect. And it was high profile. A lot of people saw it. It obviously... A lot of people were already angry at Wall Street. That just made them even angrier and led to the the public impetus, the outcry for something like the Banking Act of 1933 and Glass-Steagall, which was embedded in it. Now, again, when you actually look at the real historical record of the PCORI investigation, not the decades and decades and decades of scholarly work and journalism that has gone on to summarize the PCORI investigations and what they found, but the actual record itself, you find a different picture than what is generally portrayed, because it's generally portrayed as the PCORI investigations found, for example, that Charles Mitchell and National City were doing all these nefarious things about income tax avoidance and buying their own shares and uh, floating these bonds uh, or uh, uh, bond issues for the American public to publish from, to purchase from these South American uh, places like Peru or the Cuban sugar bonds and things that were ultimately fraudulent and they knew it was fraudulent. They were, you know, passing it on on the sucker public, that kind of stuff. Well, when you actually break down what was discovered in the investigation, what the hearings were actually about and what was actually said in them, you find a lot of these accusations that were being foisted on people like Charles Mitchell with zero proof and then Charles Mitchell and the other bankers that were dragged before the investigation denying these accusations. And then it gets summarized as, and the Pecor investigation found that blah, blah, blah. <laughs> so it, it, some of these accusations may have been true, but they were not proven by the Pecor investigation. They were simply accused and the accusations hung in the air and were denied. And that was where it stood. But Somehow or other, that gets transmuted into the PCOR investigation found. And some of the accusations did not make historical sense in the context. Uh, they were talking about uh, investments that were made 20 years before, you know, in 19, 1906 or whatever, that uh, that were not, obviously were completely different from the, the, the bubble and crash of the late 1920s. And they were talking about um, in, in bond issues that were affected themselves by the events that were going on in the in the 20s and 30s that turned out to be a bust because everything else was falling apart. But then they blamed it as if the bank knew ahead of time that that bust was going to happen. And, and so there were a lot of things where, yeah, there may have been something there, but they did not prove it. And yet it gets reported unproblematic, unproblematically as them proving it. And that led to the public outcry, which led to the Banking Act. Now, if... The Banking Act and Glass-Steagall was, if the separation of commercial and investment banks into separate things was not ultimately about making the banking system safer, was not about reducing risk, not about making everything happier or healthier, what was it really about? And it's very interesting. The answer to that really is, I think, mind-blowing. It's, it's revealing and extremely illustrative for the fundamental question underlying this episode, which is, well, why do we believe what we believe? And why should we care if what we believe is wrong, if the narrative is right? I mean, well, who cares if Glass the repeal of Glass-Steagall didn't really cause the housing bubble in crisis? It's still a good thing to have Glass-Steagall in place, right? And so, and so we should just you know, not take our little nitpicks and questions about this narrative and put them to the side and just, just you know, be a team player. Stick with the narrative, guys. 
Well, the answer to that is extremely interesting because it shows how our the public outcry that can be generated by things like this, based on little to no evidence and sometimes in direct contradiction to the actual empirical data, can be used against us in the favor of the people that we think we are harming. If you want an example of that from another context, a very related context, go and listen to some of the interviews that I did uh, at the time of this, that I put out the Century of Enslavement documentary, where I talked about the, 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 the build-up, the run-up to the 1910 Jekyll Island meeting that led to the 1913 Federal Reserve Act. And look at the crisis, the panic of 1907, which caused everyone to go, we need a solution, we need a central bank. And uh, they say, hey, guys, okay. Oh, and the, the bankers pretended, oh, don't throw us in the briar patch. Oh, no. Oh, don't give us central bank. Oh, oh, okay, guys, we'll go along with this Federal Reserve thing. That's a perfect example. People's reactions can be railroaded into phony solutions. And here's another example. So what am I talking about? Let's break this one down with a fascinating article from Alexander Tabarrok that was uh, first published in 1998. It is called Separation of Commercial and Investment Banking, the Morgans versus the Rockefellers. And this is a lengthy article, so we'll just quote a couple of passages uh, from it, but I think they're really interesting and illustrative. Reading from the article, quote, The Morgans and the Rockefellers clashed often in this period, of course, the, the turn of the century period. The chief economic rival of the House of Morgan was a formidable combination of Rockefellers in oil and banking, Harrimans in railroads, and bankers primarily associated with Kuhn, Loeb, and Lehman Brothers. In the 20th century, John D. Rockefeller Jr., W. Avril Harriman, son of E.H. Harriman, and the second generation of bankers at Kuhn, Loeb, and Lehman Brothers were the main instigators of the attack on the House of Morgan, of which the 1933 separation of commercial and investment banking was the most important aspect of the struggle. The attack was led and organized by Winthrop Aldrich of Chase National Bank. John D. Rockefeller Sr. had moved into banking by investing the cash reserves of Standard Oil in the National City Bank. James Stillman was the president of National City, and two of Stillman's sons married daughters of William Rockefeller, brother to John D. Rockefeller Sr., making this a family alliance. The cash reserves of Standard Oil were so great that this single source made National City one of the largest banks in New York. The Rockefellers, especially John D. Rockefeller Jr., wanted to dominate banking as they did oil, and around 1911, Rockefeller Sr. made substantial investments in equitable trust. Using equitable as a base, the Rockefellers rapidly expanded their bank holdings through a series of mergers. By 1920, Equitable, which had started out as a small bank, was the eighth largest bank in the country, and it continued to grow through merger and expansion through the 1920s. In 1929, Winthrop Aldrich became president of Equitable Trust. Winthrop Aldrich was John D. Rockefeller Jr.'s brother-in-law and was the son of the famous Senator Nelson Aldrich, a key player in the formation of the Federal Reserve. A lawyer by training, he was reluctant to enter banking, but did so at the urging of John D. Rockefeller Jr., who had guided his career from its inception. Under Aldrich, Equitable merged with the Morgan-dominated Chase National Bank. Chase's director was then Albert H. Wigan. Wigan had been a protege of George F. Baker and Henry P. Davison of First National Bank, both of whom were prominent within the Morgan Group. Aldrich then became president of the newly formed Chase Bank, and Wigan became chairman of its governing board. 
The position of president at Chase was initially not a powerful one. From 1920 to 1929, of the five men who had been president of Chase, only Wigan lasted more than two years. The lack of continuity meant that power rested with Wigan. Aldrich, however, moved quickly to establish his own power by promoting his own men and cutting the number of bank directors. An unpleasant corporate battle ensued in which Aldrich was opposed by Wigan, Thomas Lamont, and other executives allied with the House of Morgan. By 1931, Aldrich held the dominant position and Wigan went into retirement with a suspiciously large pension. As Roosevelt took office in 1933, the Great Depression was at its trough. 15 million workers were unemployed, real gross national product had fallen by nearly 30% since its peak in 1929, and gross investment was virtually nil. The public looked back at the financial boom of the 20s and deemed this the original sin. Bankers and financiers feared and admired in the 20s were feared and reviled in the 30s. Politicians fueled the public's animosity. In his inauguration speech, Roosevelt attacked the money changers as callous, unscrupulous, and selfish, at the same time as he called for unprecedented power for himself and a trained and loyal army willing to sacrifice for the good of a common discipline. In Congress, the Pecora hearings and later the Nye hearings fueled the same fire. The Nye hearings of 1936 accused Morgan of being a merchant of death responsible for America's entry into World War I, and the Pecora hearings purported to show a banking history of profits, greed, expansion, power, and domination. Without the Great Depression and the outrage that was generated by the Pecora hearings, the separation of commercial and investment banking would probably not have occurred. As it was, the Pecora hearings revealed that Jack Morgan had paid no income tax since 1930 and that none of the 20 Morgan partners had paid income tax in 1931 or 1932. Other members of the Morgan group, most particularly Albert Wigan, were also accused of income tax evasion. Although all of the evasion was legal and due mostly to huge stock losses, the public was infuriated. Seligman reports that bankers became the object of near hysterical rage. The public demanded that some action be taken, but it was left to the insiders like Winthrop Aldrich to determine the direction of change. Aldrich and the Rockefeller Banking Group were initially ill-served by the Pecora hearings. Wigan still represented Chase National in the minds of many, and his disgrace reflected on the bank. The other Rockefeller Bank, National City, was also being investigated, and its chairman, Charles Mitchell, and its president, Hugh Baker, were forced to resign in late February of 1933. Aldrich had to find some way to protect the Rockefeller Banks. On March 7th, National City Bank's new chairman, James Perkin, announced that the bank would divorce its security affiliate. On March 8th, Aldrich followed Perkins' surprise announcement with a sweeping plan for bank reform that many in the banking community called a betrayal. Aldrich denounced the connection of investment banking and commercial banking as almost inevitably leading to abuses. He threw his support behind the glass bill to separate commercial banks and their security affiliates, but he argued that the bill did not go far enough. In addition to the current provisions, Aldrich argued that 1. Private banks should be regulated as heavily as commercial banks, 2. Private banks should be forced to separate their commercial and investment divisions, and 3. No interlocking directorates between any type of bank and securities firm, should be allowed. The purpose of Aldrich's strategy is obvious to contemporary observers. The New York Times made Aldrich's announcement front-page news on March 9th with the headline, Aldrich hits at private bankers in sweeping plans for reforms. The Times noted that Aldrich, who is a representative of the John D. Rockefeller interests, was attacking some of Wall Street's most powerful figures and their particular interests. More than anyone else, the Aldrich program quote, strikes directly at the position of J.P. Morgan and company. 
W. W. Aldrich, first challenger to House of Morgan, was a profile of Aldrich published several days later in the World Telegram. The Wall Street Journal was more circumspect, but also alluded darkly to a Rockefeller conspiracy to vanquish J.B. Morgan and company. Most devastating to the House of Morgan was Aldrich's third point, the ban on interlocking directorates. More than any other aspect of the Glass-Steagall Act, it was the ban on interlocking directorates that separated commercial from investment banking. Of the 20 Morgan partners, 10 were directors of at least one commercial bank. Moreover, the officers of Morgan-controlled banks, such as George F. Baker on the, of the First National Bank, were also often directors of other banks. The extent of the connection between banks in the Morgan Group was probably best illustrated by the finding of the Pecora Committee that J.P. Morgan and company had given loans to 60 officers and directors of other banks. As Jack Morgan noted, they are friends of ours and we know that they are good, sound, straight fellows. End quote. All right. Again, that's only a snippet. That's only a little bit of that much larger and very detailed article. So please do go and read the rest. But I think that gives you the sense of what is going on here. That in essence, it was the Rockefeller group and associated interests and their banking interests were at war with the Morgan group and its associated interests and banking interests. Now, let's put that in perspective, the overall perspective. One, they're both mobsters. Both sides are despicable and horrible and we shouldn't be on their side. But at any rate, they do have, they're not a monolithic entity. It is not the one monolithic conspiracy and everyone bows down in the same direction. There are competing factions. There are competing mob bosses and they, they do fight for territory from time to time, and like a mob war, sometimes they'll bring out the guns and they'll shoot some of their uh, their opponents and there will be a big mob brawl. And at the end of it, hopefully one of the mob bosses will get on top of the other one and be ruler of the, 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 the entire territory. But it's, it's that game. And of course, they'll never do anything that would fundamentally question that system. They're never going to come down with regulations that will completely really restrain the bankers, of course they won't. Winthrop Aldrich is not going to bring down the bankers, just like his father did not want to bring down the bankers when he put forward the what the first version of the Federal Reserve Act and ultimately supported what became the Federal Reserve. I mean, it, of course, these people are not going to save you from themselves. That is not the point. The point is to direct the public's outrage in a certain way that will give one of the mob bosses a leg up on the other mob boss. It is a fascinating history. And when you read about it, know more about that history of Morgan and Rockefeller and their competing banking interests, it makes it makes sense, but you have to know that context to know how that played into the Glass-Steagall and what that was ultimately about. And how you can imagine what 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 is happening in our own day and age in, in for example, the reinstatement of Glass-Steagall. Which banking interests are served would be served by that, and who are they supporting, and what political narratives does this support, and what what political careers are made or broken on the basis of this type of passing of regulation and what have you, and the way this is framed, and the narratives that are made. Well, actually, that is an answerable question, at least in part, and although the answer may not particularly surprise you, the place where that answer is coming from might. It's coming from the New Yorker, of all places, because now we find, in fact, there are elements of the political left that are willing to question this Glass-Steagall narrative that they've been pumping for a long time, because now... It's the Trump administration that is talking about the possibility of maybe we should reinstate Glass-Steagall, so it's now fair game for the left to attack. 
uh, the reinstatement of Glass-Steagall. So what on, on what basis? What, what is the ulterior, ulterior motive that could be behind the reinstatement of Glass-Steagall if it isn't about getting at those darn dirty bankers? Well, in an article from uh, just last month, What Would Be Wrong With Trump Restoring Glass-Steagall, Nicholas Lehman writes... Investment banking firms like Goldman Sachs, though consistent in their stated opposition to government regulation, always kind of liked Glass-Steagall. Before 1999, when the law was revamped during the Clinton administration, it gave them an exclusive franchise in high-fee areas like initial public offerings and mergers, which banks like Chase and Citicorp, as they were called at the time, couldn't enter. The leading actor in the campaign to change Glass-Steagall was Sanford Weil, the financial conglomerateur whose insurance company merged with Citicorp and wanted to compete with the investment banks. He has since repented. For a career Goldman Sachs employee like Gary Cohn, of course now uh, in the Trump administration, to say that he's open to restoring Glass-Steagall hardly signals that he's abandoned the convictions of a lifetime and abruptly allied allied himself with the left, Ever since the tussles between Alexander Hamilton and Thomas Jefferson in the earliest days of the Republic, battles over the powers of big banks have not fit neatly into a left-right frame. Restoring Glass-Steagall, or something like it, was in both the Republican and Democratic platforms in 2016. If the Trump administration and finance's most celebrated Democratic critics come to agreement on Glass-Steagall, should we rejoice? Not necessarily. There is a danger that if the administration pursues what seems to be its course on Glass-Steagall, it would function as a kind of vaccine that keeps public suspicion of the administration's closeness to finance at bay. The Glass-Steagall wall between commercial and investment banking was originally supposed to prevent one of the many uh, ways financial institutions could cheat unsuspecting small customers. There are plenty more of these ways, including new ones invented by the online finance industry. Dot, dot, dot. So you see the way, of course, they'll spin this back into the left-right paradigm, and this is about those evil righties coming along and taking the virtuous left's great idea and using it against them. But the principle is there. The principle is that they can use your anger and your ignorance of these events and who they benefit and what it ultimately... What, what does this actually mean? Who does this really affect? And they can use it against you. And this is the point that's being elaborated here, although I think it gets spun off into left-right nonsense. But it is the point. It is the fundamental point that if we don't question who is really behind this and for what motives and what who does this benefit and is this just a pure good as it's been stated to us all this time? Unless we question that and question it continuously, we will not come to an understanding of what this is really doing. Now, this goes to the fundamental heart of the question of a podcast like this one or the recent conversation with G. Edward Griffin about JFK. Why? Why question our assumptions? Why go back? I mean, we know the overall narrative. We know the banksters are evil. And so anything that can be ammunition against the banksters is good ammunition, even if it's not exactly true, right? I mean, okay, maybe Executive Order 11110 wasn't about ending the Fed, but but we know the banksters had something to do with killing JFK anyway, so that there you go. There's a motive, and you can explain it easily to people. People will understand it quite, quite simply. So just use it. I mean, don't question it that much, James, right? Oh, Glass-Steagall, I mean, it's banking regulation. We have to regulate these banksters. We know that that's the, the heart of the problem was deregulation, right? We know that. We don't have to 
back it up with actual facts or data. We just know it. And so because it'll hurt the banksters and their interests and it will promote free humanity somehow, let's just argue for the reinstatement of Glass-Steagall and not question who's behind that reinstatement or what their agenda may be, right? No, we have to continually question. And I would say, first of all, to anyone who wants to consider themselves a truth seeker, we should be interested in the actual verifiable truth of these matters just on their on its own sake. That is what motivates me. I truly do want to know the truth about the world because if nothing else, it helps me better understand the world that I'm living in so I can better act and react and, and be a human being within this world. If I don't know the ground level truth, the reality, if I delude myself with this ideology or that, then it's going to lead me astray from time to time. I want to know reality. So anyone who considers themselves a truth seeker who isn't interested in the truth is, I think, right off the bat suspicious. But it's interesting how many times I get that argument from people, a strategic argument, especially when it comes to something like climate change. It's like, okay, James, maybe CO2 isn't the global uh, thermostat and we can't dial the temperature up or down just depending on the CO2 levels. Maybe Maybe that's bunk. But... But, I mean, what are you saying? Shouldn't we try to get off of these, uh, I mean, oil, the oil industry, you, you know, they're the monopolization specialists. They've monopolized humanity. They've done all this evil stuff. So it's a good narrative to get people to get off of oil, right? So, A, truth seekers are trying to promote lies that they'll admit at some point, okay, there's nothing to back up this lie that I'm telling, but it's a convenient lie to get people on my side. But B, if we don't know the truth, about an issue, and if we're not actually advocating the tr- for the truth and the true narrative, then how can we ever effectively attack or get at these people that we know are the, the predators? Because they can use our, our outrage and they can direct us in a certain direction. Oh, you're outraged about the bankers in the 1929 crash. Hey, here guys, here's Glass-Steagall. Look, It'll solve everything. And the Rockefellers laugh all the way to the bank. And the Morgans are angry and upset. Um, That's the way it works. It's a mafia hit. And we get used as the players in a hit like that. So, hey, guys, look. Oh, the oil industry and all the horrible carnage. Take that. Take that power, that anger that you feel. And look, here's a Paris climate treaty. Here, guys, here's the solution. Hmm. Could it be that... When we see Exxon and everyone lining up to get behind that solution, maybe it's maybe it's not the solution. Maybe there are certain business interests that are playing hit on other business interests. Maybe we're being used as pawns in all of this. Maybe the only answer is to try to continually question our assumptions and get at the truth. So, that's the message for today's podcast. And I'm very much looking forward to seeing if anyone participates in my little challenge here about writing your own comments down. I... Hope someone took me up on that, and uh, it will be very interesting. And going forward, I'm going to be doing this more, at least for my own personal benefit. Writing down what I think I know about subjects and then questioning those assumptions is a valuable way of proceeding forward towards the truth. That's going to do it for today, guys. I very much enjoyed talking to you today. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. I'm looking forward to hearing your feedback, your comments, and your thoughts. I'm James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and I'm looking forward to talking to you very soon next week. It's time for the people to take our country back. We're going to resurrect the glass eagle Act. 
But now the bankers buy your property They can then foreclose It's the ultimate shell game I suppose Hey, you can't say this You can't say that Excuse me, but the fact is a fact Federal Reserve, the heart of the American banking system. For over 100 years, it has operated in the shadows, controlling America's money supply in total secrecy. So all that information is available uh, in our commercial paper. And program. who got the money? Hundreds and hundreds of banks. Any bank or that has uh, access to the U.S. Uh, Federal Reserve's discount. Can tell us who they are. No. Until now. 100 years ago, in 1913, the Fed was created. Fractional reserve banking. The legal authority to do it. Takeover of monetary policy. Are conducted by the Federal Reserve Banks. They are banks. There is no other agency of government which can overrule actions that we take. Century of Enslavement. The history of the Federal Reserve. Watch the documentary for free at corporatereport.com slash Federal Reserve and purchase a copy on DVD to help support The Corbett Report today. The house came crashing down, and American taxpayers were given the bill when the deregulated financial sector fell apart. I'm not sure we still know the whole truth. History will track and help to, you know, uh, write the reality of all of that. 